ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. There was a revival going on in Jerusalem. Hundreds, thousands of people were coming to faith in Christ. They were increasing in number daily and dramatically. Some people were reminded of the time in Genesis when God told Adam and Eve to increase in number and fill the earth. Jerusalem was being filled with Christians, and Stephen was a big part of that. That's what this Bible study episode is all about. So last week, uh, we looked at Acts chapter 6. We're going to be back there again today. And one of the things we spent quite a bit of time looking at is If you look there in uh, chapter 6 of Acts, uh, verse 1, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So we spent some time talking about the difference between the Hebraic Jews and the Greek Jews and what it was that kind of set each group apart in and of itself. And... One of the things we said is that the the Hebraic Jews were from Jerusalem, from Judea. They were from this area. Uh, they um, knew how to speak Aramaic, which was the voice, I mean, the, the, the language of that area at that time of the Jews. Uh, Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke uh, when he was conversing uh, during his time. Uh, and they also knew how to read, generally speaking, the Hebrew of the Old Testament. Uh, whereas the Grecian Jews, or some translations would call it the Hellenistic Jews, uh, they were Jewish, but they weren't from the local area. They were from outside uh, the immediate uh, Palestine, Judea area. And, uh, and they had come uh, to Jerusalem, probably, for Pentecost and had been caught up uh, in following Christ and became believers. Uh, so these are, they're all, they're all believers. The Hellenistic or Hebraic Jews are believers in Christ and followers of Christ. So are the Grecian Jews. They're believers as well. But the Grecian Jews came from outside the area. They didn't speak Aramaic. They spoke Greek. They didn't read Hebrew. They read Greek. And so there was this kind of, you know, 
a pecking order. I don't want to know if I want to call it a division per se, not really. But, you know, there was, hey, us and them. You know, we are the Hebrew Jewish believers. You are the Grecian. And, and there was some, I'm sure, in the minds of some that one was a little superior to the other. Uh, and that would be that, hey, we speak Aramaic. That's the language that Jesus spoke. We read Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament was written in. You speak the Greek. That's the language of the world. And you don't read Hebrew and you read Greek. And that's the language of the world. And so, you know, there was probably not in every case, I'm sure not in the case of the disciples themselves, but in the case of some, I mean, we have now thousands and thousands of believers at this time. And so, you mean, human nature is what human nature is, and Satan can use that as a way to wiggle his way in. And so, whether it was intentional or not, the perception of the Grecian Jews was that we're not being treated fairly. And as an aside to that, it's what's important in life is not your intention. I'm sure the disciples had no intention of this division or this pecking order. They had not, no intention of that happening, but the perception is that it was happening. So it doesn't matter what your intention is, as good as it might be. What's important is the perception of what you are doing or saying. So you have always to keep in mind, even though your intention is good, to think about how are people going to perceive this. That's the important thing. So anyway, Mike, uh, Mike brought up, what about the scriptures that they were using? Is it possible that the Grecian Jews were reading the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament? And I wasn't sure, and I, I, so I wanted to do some research, and exactly, Mike is exactly right. The Septuagint uh, took place, that, that translation, in the 2nd or 3rd century B.C. And so at this time, at this point in time, it was readily available. I want to say readily. Back in that day, nothing was readily available. But if the Greek Jews were reading the Old Testament, they were reading it from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So I wanted to... Um, bring in, uh, to give you a little bit more of the history of that, which I think is very interesting, and I hope you find it interesting too. This is David Palmer's book that he wrote called A Casket Empty, and he talked about the Septuagint, and it's really quite interesting, the history of it. So I'm just going to read a portion of this uh, and uh, see what you think. So the, it came from Ptolemy, Ptolemy II is the one who was responsible for translating it. He was a Greek uh, after uh, Alexander the Great passed away, the uh, Grecian Empire was divided, and the Ptolemies ended up uh, in control. Although they were Greek uh, in their, uh, you know, uh, ancestry, uh, Ptolemies were in the southern part in 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 Egypt. They controlled Egypt. Hmm. Yes, as a matter of fact, that's where I'll start. Uh, and the the Ptolemies ruled from 301 to 200 BC. So this is what Davis says. He says, Ptolemy I combined the Greek cultural and intellectual tradition 
with Egyptian religion and mythology. His dynasty would endure for nearly 300 years until his last monarch, Cleopatra VII, uh, committed suicide after Mark Antony's defeat by Octavian in 31 BC. Israel became incorporated into Ptolemy's kingdom in 301 BC. So uh, then he goes on to talk about the translation. Says, Ptolemy II is remembered as a man of learning and culture. Under his patronage, the Library of Alexandria acquired and disseminated encyclopedic learning to the broader Greek world. Alexandrian customs officials would search merchant ships for books. All books would be taken into custody so that copies could be produced for the library. The Library of Alexandria grew into the largest in the world. It contained a vast collection of works ranging from philosophical treatises to cookbooks. At this time, Ptolemy II learned of the worth of the Bible and the need to translate it into Greek. He sent a letter to the high priest in Jerusalem requesting that their law be translated into Greek from the Hebrew original. The high priest selected six learned men from each of the 12 tribes. These 72 translators were brought from Israel to Egypt, where they are hosted by the Greek king and lavishly supplied. During an extended seven-day banquet, King Ptolemy poses a series of ethical questions to the translators in a stylized symposium. Each of their answers made explicit reference to God. Ptolemy proclaimed that these men excelled in virtue and understanding, for they gave glory to God in all things and proclaimed his sovereign hand over all nations. The work of these translators took place on an island of Pharaoh, on the island of Pharos, located off the coast of Alexandria. Their version became known as uh, the translation of the 70, the Septuagint, commonly identified by the Roman numerals LXX. Uh, this is the first large-scale translation project in the ancient world. Ptolemy II built the lighthouse on the island of Pharos, the very place where God's word was being translated. The lighthouse was 450 feet high, the second tallest man-made structure in the world, just shorter than the Great Pyramid of Giza. The signal fire of the lighthouse would radiate a beam of light more than 100 miles. This, and this is what's cool, is the unending light of God's word now becomes available to the nations under God's sovereign hand on the same island. So here, see, we're talking about the poetry of God. Here is this Greek king building this lighthouse in Egypt that sends out a beam of light for 100 miles. And on the same island, at the foot of that lighthouse, the light of God is going out as his word is translated into Greek so the whole world can read it, because at that time, the whole world was basically speaking and reading Greek. So this lighthouse is just this physical representation of what's happening spiritually. And in the poetry of God, he brings those two together. I just think it's such a wonderful, because there's a song, isn't it? Uh, in the lighthouse, something about the lighthouse. Remember when I was a kid, there was a song, something about the lighthouse and shining the light. And, and that is a representation of God's light going out into the world. So here we have the physical and the spiritual coming together. It's just, I love that. So it says, the significance of the Septuagint is that the word of God became available to a much broader Greek-speaking audience. The translation also meets the needs of Greek-speaking Jewish communities outside the land of Israel. The Septuagint seeks to be faithful to the original Hebrew text 
and to strike a middle position between excessive literalism and dynamic equivalence. The Septuagint defines many key biblical terms in Greek. This is the version often read and quoted by the New Testament writers when they cite the Old Testament. So when you read James and, and when you read you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're um, referring to Old Testament scripture, they often are taking it right from the Septuagint because they wrote their letters in Greek. And so when they refer to it, they just go back to the Greek Septuagint and they, and they use that translation. However, that said, that actually could contribute even more to the difference between us and them that was happening in Jerusalem at this time, right? Because now you have the group of Hebraic Jews saying, well, our Torah was written in Hebrew, and your Torah is written in Greek, and it's a translation. So ours is superior, yours is inferior, and yet another opportunity for them to kind of look down their noses at the other. Uh, and that's not all that much, di- I mean, that, and I can see that happening. The reason I see that happening is because, you know, most people today can't read Greek or Hebrew. I mean, if you're David Palmer, you can, and Christine, more power to him. I don't know how. I took, I took Greek uh, here at this church. Susan Rice did it several years ago. And we started in, uh, it was like, a, it was like a, uh, a regular school year. We started in the fall on a Wednesday night, and she was teaching and had a, someone else helped her. I can't remember now who that was. But, and we would go through the spring, and it was like a regular, every Wednesday night, studying, learning Greek. And uh, when they, uh, we started with about 30, 35 people. <laughs> and when we finished, we had six. Because when they, you hear, they say it's all Greek to me. There's a reason for that. Because it was, it was awful. And I don't remember any of it. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I can't, so I can't, I can't do that. So I have to read the English translation. Now, the English translation is an inferior translation. I mean, it's the best we can do. But to really get the beauty and the depth and the real meaning of it, you really need to read, read the New Testament in Greek. And you really need to read the Old Testament in the Hebrew. And if you can't do that, you get the best we can do, which is English, which is okay, but it's not really as good. And so those people who can read Greek and Hebrew, you know, I could understand if they would say, you read the English translation of it. So this is the kind of thing that was happening there. Hey, the Greek was the best we could do, but... Before that, that, I mean, I can understand that they would say, you don't even know the Old Testament. You can't read it. Why, 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 I mean, you you never even read it. You're not getting the real language. Yeah. I mean, you've heard this example many times, but it's so true for, as an example, in English, we have one word for love. What kind of love is that? Is that the love for me for my wife? Is that the love for me for my sister? Is that the love for me for God? You got to tell from the con- you got to tell from the context, right, of what it means. But in Greek, there's a separate, different word for each of those. So uh, the agape is God is the love of God. Uh, phileo is the God of for a brother and uh, uh, for a sister. So you know from the word in Greek which one they're talking to. In English, you have to figure it out. So that's one example of why you know. It might have been. It's several years ago, so I don't really remember. 
But, uh, I mean, the fact that Susan could, I mean, the people who can do that, I just admire because it's so, so difficult. So, praise the Lord that they can do that. Um, yeah, it was 300 to 200 uh, BC. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't, I've lost it now. But, yeah, it was 300 to, uh, right, it was 300 to 200. Uh, BC, yeah. Well, That's what it was translated. It was BC. Yeah. Was your class written Greek, or was it just? No. Well, yeah, we had to be able to. Well, we we did. We weren't speaking it. We just had to read it and translate it. You had to be able to read it. Written Greek. Written Greek. Yeah. Yeah. Let me see here. We have study tools that can help us with some. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well. We 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 had uh, we had David Hansen come in. We had David Hansen come in, and he was a pastor at the time, and kind of tell us how he did it. And he said, I got a computer software that I can... Google Translate. <laughs> yeah. So this uh, Susan gave us uh, when we... It's a bookmark, and it says in Greek, basically something like, Agapatoi, Agapane, I don't know, all this. So I had to write in the back. What, what it, so, I, so I would remember what it says. What it says is, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. We love because he first loved us. That's what that says, but it's in Greek. So we had to be able to do this and read it and translate it. As I said, I don't remember any of it. But, and so what I use is books that tell me this means that. And I do look it up as I study because I do find that sometimes when I look to the Greek, it's like, oh, my gosh. Now I, I never saw that before. And when you look at the Greeks, oh, well, that means so much more to me now. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes it does, and it's really cool when it does. So, Okay, so let's go ahead and get started then on our uh, covering new, new ground today. So we're still in uh, Acts chapter 6, and um, let me kind of read uh, from verses 1 through 5, which is what we did last week, and then we'll pick up with uh, verses, or verse, uh, we went through 1 through 6. We'll start at verse 7 uh, today. So Acts 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now remember, Waiting on tables wasn't just serving the food, cooking and serving the food. That was certainly part of it. But it was more encompassing than that. It was also dealing with the money that was coming in. You know, so people would bring, they would sell their property, they'd bring the money in. They would, these people would take the money and they would buy food with it or whatever people needed and they would distribute that. So it wasn't just showing up and cook, I'll say just, it wasn't cooking and serving tables. That was part of it, but it was more encompassing than that, including dealing with the money, which the disciples want nothing to do with that. They, the disciples didn't want to have to deal with the administration of the church. They wanted to deal with the spiritual life of the church, which we said is still a good, a good plan for us to do today. So verse 3, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. So here is the job description. The people you choose need to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. And the idea of wisdom there is the idea of knowing the word of God and then applying that to your everyday life. That's the kind of wisdom we're talking about, that your daily life is informed by your faith. Uh, And that is so true today, right? Because it doesn't do any good to just have wisdom on Sunday. 
if it were Monday, you go back to doing things the world's ways, then that doesn't serve God's purpose. If you're a Christian and believer, you need to have wisdom seven days a week, every day, including in the way you conduct yourself in business and in your family and so on and so forth. So it's not just wisdom on Sunday or on Lord's Day. It's wisdom of conducting your life according to your faith every single day so people know it and see it. So that's what they're talking about here. It says, uh, we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So there, we talked about Stephen being the first one listed. That's important. And he's the only one where they gave some of his characteristics, something about him, something about his character and the kind of person he was. He was a man full of faith. Okay, so he, he was a man who conducted his life according to his faith. And he was full of the Holy Spirit. So there we see that he already has one of the job requirements on the resume is that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what the job description required. So he's a special guy. And then he goes on to also name the other ones. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And we said all of those names are Greek names. So so what they, they did was they said okay, Grecian Jews, if we are biased against you and we're not treating you right, we're sorry, we didn't mean to, and we're going to let you handle it. And then you can take care of it to make sure you people don't get overlooked. We talked about how that took trust in them because as the Hebraic Jews were turning this over to the Grecian Jews, the Grecian Jews could have said, okay, we're going to get you back now. You get the wings, you know, instead of the thighs or whatever. So, but they trusted them that they would not do that, and they didn't. And so, but they wanted to show that they. I think this is a, an effort to show these Grecian Jews that it was unintentional, and we didn't mean to do that. And if we did it, we're sorry. And so you guys go, and you make the decision. You can do it however you want to do it. So that's what they did. And in today's in today's world, they would have said, "You can have the majority. We'll give you four of the seven members, and the Hebraic Jews will be the other two. Right. It's not represent. It's not representational. You know, I think about that all the time. It's like it doesn't bother me when a committee's all men. If they are full of wisdom, and then they're going to think about women. Issues too, you know. It doesn't have to be women there to think about women's issues. That presumes that somebody's selfish and only thinks about themselves and doesn't think about other people. Amen. Anyway. No, that's that's a great point. Yeah. That's a great yeah. point, and uh, you know, and and so often that's one of the things about the translation of the Bible. And you were asking Grady, one of the things that kind of bugs me in the 1984 translation NIV, where it says men, it's men. It says here, you know, but in the newer translation, instead of saying men, even though even though the Greek might just say men, which it obviously does so often, just because of the culture of the day, they have taken it upon themselves to trans to change it to be men and women. Yeah. Which that, that goes without saying, I think, right? Or even it was just like Cheryl said, even if it was just men. I mean, the Christian Church enabled and empowered women, and Christ empowered women. The disciples empowered women much way beyond what the culture and the society that they did, even though they were men-focused as well. So, you know, I don't think you have to, I don't think you have to say it. I think it's implied and it's known and it's proven by what happened, you know. 
So anyway, good point. But they said, no, we're going to turn it all over to the, the Greek people, the Greek believers, and then they can do it according to how they want to do it. And it worked out just fine. Okay, so verse 6. Um, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. We talked about laying on the hands and what that was all about. So that was cool. So now verse 7. Um, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Does anything in that verse strike you as surprising? Large number of priests. Yeah. So they weren't obedient to the faith before. Well, yeah, because you know they were priests. They were, you know, they were members of the the tribe of Levi. They were Levites. Uh, they may or may not have been in the Sanhedrin. They might have just been those priests that had their priestly duty to care for the temple and its uh, maintenance and that kind of thing. But the fact is, they were of the priestly tribe of Levi, and they were Jewish priests. So now you've taken a movement which had been largely manual laborers, uneducated people, uh, where the high priests and the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, kind of looked down their nose at this movement because these were people that didn't know any better. You know, they're the hicks from the sticks. And so what do they know? We, we know more than they do. We know what's real and what's not. We know what's genuine, what's counterfeit. And so they, can, they could ignore it. But now there are so many and some of them are priests who have now taken Christ as their savior. Now it's getting to the point where you can't dismiss it because number one, it's growing so quickly. Number two, all of these miraculous signs and wonders, all these people are getting healed. Remember that from Peter and John? And now you have your own guy that you're rubbing elbows with working on in the temple, he's now a believer and he's a priest just like you. And if he believes it, you know, then maybe you have to reconsider what you're thinking there. And it says here, well, I think it's something isn't it? it's kind of subtle, but I think uh, well, before I get to, before I get to that before I go off on that tangent, let me say this. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Gamaliel and how he stood up and defended Peter and John. And we said, why would he do that? And we said, well, maybe he's starting to have some doubts himself about maybe this is a real thing, that this uh, Jesus movement is maybe, maybe, it, maybe it's not just uh, counterfeit and wrong. Maybe it's right. Maybe it is really of God. And so maybe he's having second thoughts about that himself. We talked about how uh, not only was it what he was hearing from Peter and John and seeing all the miracles and seeing the people converted, but possibly too that in the Sanhedrin, he was the president of the Sanhedrin, and maybe there were people inside the Sanhedrin who were becoming believers and who were influencing him, like Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea. And now we have exactly what this basically is saying the same thing, is that there were other priests who were now evangelizing and talking and, and coming to Christ and so, you know, he was he was being influenced maybe by hearing what they had to say. So maybe that they had his ear. So this is this is exactly how it's working out. That might be one explanation as to why Gamaliel did stand up for them and and in the way that he did at that time. That hey, this is something now that is uh, 
something that because of what's happening and how it's happening, how quickly it's happening, how how it's overwhelming uh, in the things they're doing and saying the results of it, that we need to think maybe God is a part of it. We need to be careful here about how we move forward. And so here we see that it's the, the, the priestly community was indeed uh, maybe helping influence him and other people in that priestly uh, a tribe uh, to come to Christ or consider Christ uh, as well as being authentic and real and truly from God. So but the thing I want to point out that's a little bit um, uh, subtle is it says, so the word of God spread. Well, you know, why? Because now the disciples are no longer cooking and serving and taking care of the money, right? They now have set up an organization that allows the disciples to do what? Pray and preach. And so because I think that the disciples now are free, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, right? There's only so many hours in the day. So I, I, I'm, my, my business, I'm a salesman. That's what I do uh, for a living. It's where I make my living. <clears throat> and I'm on straight commission. So if I don't sell, I don't eat. Uh, so it, it's important, you know, to have, and, and when I first went to work for this company, they said, you can, there's no limit to the amount of money you can make. <laughs> you know, there's no limit. I mean, you, uh, you sell, it's, you know, however much you sell, you're going to make that much money. And I, I, I believed them, which I shouldn't have. And uh, because what I have found over the 30 years I've been there is that there is a limit to how much money you can make. And the limit is there's only so many hours in the day. I, I, can only, I can only do so much. And so the disciples are in the same way. When they have all the administration to do, there's only so many hours in the day. They, that's hours away from preaching and teaching and praying. But free from that now, they have more time. They're out doing more preaching and praying and teaching. And so... The word of God is spreading. It's because they're out there with more time to do what they were called to do. Praise God. So I think this church does a great job. But for churches that expect their pastors to do more than praying and preaching and teaching and the ministry, uh, they're hurting themselves because the preacher is called to bring people to Christ and disciple and evangelize. And it can only, there's only so many hours in a day and they can be much more effective if they have more time, they've given more time to their congregations to do it. So that's what's happening here. So that's all good news. Okay, so let's look now at verse eight. Oh, wait, wait, there's one other thing. Oh, there's one other thing that's really important here. I don't want to miss this. Let's go back to verse seven for a minute. Okay, so look here at the word, okay, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased. Okay. Go back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, verse, uh, hold on, 28, I think it is. Genesis 1. That's the beginning, isn't it? Okay. So Genesis 1, uh, verse 28. Uh, I'll go start 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish, the sea, the living creatures. So the word there, 
increase in Genesis 1.28, in the Septuagint, in the Greek, is the exact same word as Acts chapter 6, verse 7, where it talks about the, disciple, the number of disciples or believers in Jerusalem increase rapidly. It's the same Greek word. So it's interesting, isn't it, that Luke chose that word to describe what was happening in Jerusalem at this time. And I'm thinking that, you know, maybe Luke was trying to parallel the two. And, and the idea, I think, is that when God created this perfect world and the perfect man and woman before the fall, that he called on them, one of the first things he told them to do, if not the first thing, is to increase and fill the earth and subdue it. Go out and fill this earth, increase and subdue it, bring it under your control. And then here we are, fast forward to uh, Acts, and Luke is saying, God now is redeeming mankind. So Adam and Eve fell, sin came into the world. And so now God, through Christ and, and through belief in, in Christ, God is redeeming the world. He's recreating mankind, as it were, spiritually. And so when he recreates man by redeeming man and forgiving man and taking away his sin, Again, the first thing he, God isn't speaking here, but through Luke, God is speaking. He's saying increase, and he's, he's helping that to increase again. And my thought then, then is logically, the implication is that spiritually he's asking us to do now as believers what he asked Adam and Eve to do physically when they were first created in the garden. And that is we also are called to increase spiritually, not physically, but to increase through spiritual means and to fill the earth with believers and subdue Satan through our faith. So what God called man to do physically in Genesis, here now in Acts as the new creation of man begins, the recreated man, the redeemed man, spiritually, he's telling believers to do the same thing. Increase in the world spiritually, make believers, make disciples, spread the good news, spread the word of God, and fill the earth with salt and light and believers and subdue it, overcome uh, Satan. The problem is the fall. The problem is when sin came into the world, when Satan was given an open door to the world and to man, immediately it became a lot harder for Adam and Eve to subdue the earth physically, didn't it? That was part of the curse uh, that God put on the land. Uh, now it's going to be, you're going to have to toil, now you're going to have to sweat, now it's going to be hard to produce crops and so forth. And so, same way today, it's hard, it's difficult for us to subdue the earth and increase uh, as Christians uh, because we have a battle now. We have Satan, we have sin, and so what God wants us to do and intended for us to, instructed us to do, has become difficult and a battle because Satan and sin are now in the world 
fighting against us, as it were. So that was, I think, something very interesting that I wanted you to see in that. So let's go on then. Verse 8, it says, Now uh, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. So now we get even more about Stephen, okay? We, we get even more of his qualifications. Before up in verse uh, 5, we got that he was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 8, we find he was a man full of God's grace and power. So this was really some kind of a guy here, this Stephen. Uh, you know, God's grace, the idea of God's grace, I think, is that he didn't hold a grudge. He, 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 was, he, he, he was easy to get along with. Uh, God's grace, you know, what's, what's God's, God's grace is forgiveness. God's grace is overlook, you know, I don't overlook, but I allow you to find a way to be forgiven so we can have a new relationship. Well, that's the same thing that we find sometimes difficult to do in our own lives, that we need to be able to forgive people and create a new relationship or renew a relationship. So I think what they're saying here is Stephen, he was full of God's grace. He was a guy that, you know, you could get along with, and he was he, he was forgiving in his ways, and, and he was, you know, easy to like, as it were, and, and he he didn't hold a grudge, and, he, and you know, he, he gave you grace yourself as he got grace from God. Because to give grace, I think you have to get grace. When you get grace, you should give grace. And if you don't give grace, then you know what good does it do you get to get grace? I mean, it gives good for yourself, but it doesn't do good for other people. So um, it's like you know, take your ball and go home with it. Well, that doesn't make it fun to play. So anyway, so and he was full of power. Well, what kind of power? Well, look what we find out. What kind of power? He did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, because who has been doing that up till now? Jesus did it. Peter did it. John did it. The 12 did it. But now Stephen is doing it. Great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Now, I think that's significant. And the reason I think it's significant is because, um, you know, you can look at Peter and John and the disciples and say, well, of course, of course they could do great signs and wonders. They were disciples, for goodness sakes. I mean, you know, great for Peter. I mean, you know, he can do those amazing things, but he is Peter after all, and John and so on and so forth. But here is Stephen, who was not, a disciple, or was not an apostle. He wasn't one of the 12 who walked with Jesus. He wasn't one of the 120 early believers. He was a latecomer. He came after Pentecost during one of those great times when we said we have the 3,000 that came and the 2,000 that came and more and more are coming. He was one of those people that came afterwards. And not only was he a latecomer to the faith, as it were, at this point, but he's also a Grecian Jew, right? He is one of those that came from outside. So you look at Stephen and say, well, my goodness, you know, if Stephen can do it, you know, then maybe there's things that I can do too. Um, I think it's significant because here for the first time that we have in Scripture, it's not Jesus doing it, it's not an apostle doing it, it's not Peter doing it, it's not one of the twelve doing it, it's a believer that came afterwards. And he was able to do this through the power of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit 
within him and upon him. And so here's Stephen, who he starts off small as a believer, as a Grecian Jew, and then he's given a position in the seven men who are making decisions about the table, and now all of a sudden here he is doing these wonders and miraculous signs. And sometimes that's the way God works, is he gives you a small thing. And then if you're faithful in that, he gives you a bigger thing. You're faithful in that, he gives you a bigger thing. And, you know, and at some point, maybe you get to the point where you're right where he wants you to be, and that's where he uses you. But in order to, if you, if you have a desire to be faithful in a big way in life, it's a good idea to take small steps and start small and be faithful. And that's the way God often does it. And that's the way he did it for Stephen. And now here Stephen is, and he's rocking and he's rolling. And he has this great reputation, you know, a great reputation, a man who is full of wisdom and the spirit and God's grace and power. And now he's doing this wonderful, amazing thing. And I think, you know, whom God chooses, God uses. If God chooses you, he's going to use you. And we all are different. We all have different gifts. We all have different things that we do, all different um, ministries that we have. But we all need each other. Um, and and that's, that's important. But, but be faithful when God has given you to do whatever it is, and he will open that door for you. I think, it, I think it's interesting, too, that there are certain times in history when God puts just the right people in just the right place at just the right time. You know, in the Bible, you have Esther. Remember the story of Esther? And where she was so uh, afraid, as it were, intimidated to go see the king, uh, Mordecai, for you know, Haman, what Haman is doing. And Mordecai says to Esther, well, you know, maybe God puts you in this place at this time just for this purpose, you know. You can't shrink back from that now. And the same thing with, um, you know, Joseph, right? Joseph, in the Old Testament, his brothers throw him in a ditch and sell him to slave traders and all of that. But, uh, you know, God put Joseph in the place at a time because in Egypt then when there was the famine, he was there to pave the way for his brothers and for his whole family. And so God put him in the right place at the right time for a certain reason. And then you look back in our own history. I think, you know, you look at the Revolutionary War, right? I mean, you know, you have in the same place, in the same time, the Washingtons and the Adams and the Jeffersons and the Hamiltons and all of that. And look at World War II when you have Churchill and FDR and MacArthur and Patton and Eisenhower and all those guys. Look at the Civil War, you know, when you have Lincoln and Grant and Sherman and there's a guy in the Civil War, if you haven't ever looked him up, look him up. His name is um, Joshua Chamberlain. Joshua Chamberlain, he was of the 20th Maine Regiment, and he was a hero of Gettysburg. And he was brave, and he, he held his spot, and he was recognized as one of the great heroes of that battle, one of the great heroes of the Union Army. And... Um, when uh, Lee surre uh, surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse, Joshua Chamberlain was the one who took the uh, who took the, the treaty and who took uh, his um, you know when he surrendered took his surrender. So he was an amazing guy, you know. And then you look at Jerusalem in the first century, Peter and John and the apostles and Stephen. And, you know, there are just times when God puts the right people in the right place at the right time. And you don't even, I'm sure you didn't, I mean, if you read 
the founding fathers and their writings, they didn't know the way we were going to look at them today and revere them. They were struggling. They were just trying to, I mean, the British Empire, for goodness sake, I mean, that was the great power in the world. And for them to take that on, it was a struggle. And, and then, you know, once they got through that, they started struggling with each other. And there were a lot of internal problems. I mean, um, Adams uh, didn't like Jefferson too much. And Adams and Jefferson hated Hamilton. And there was all, if you read these, you know, they really, really did not like each other. And yet they did what God called, called them to do at the time. And now we look back at what they did was amazing. So um, the fact of the matter is sometimes you're in a struggle and you can't see the forest for the trees. Here's the way I put it. And this will be the last, I'll end on this today. I say often that, that sometimes God doesn't make sense except in hindsight. Sometimes God doesn't make sense except in hindsight. When you're going through the problem, you don't understand it. When you're having the difficulty and the storm is coming, you, you, you wonder why. You can't see what God is doing. You can't understand why is this happening to me? What, what in the world what do you want from me, God? You know, that kind of thing. And it takes to get to the other the other side of that. And you just have to have patience. You just have to wait on the Lord because he'll see you through. And when you get on the other side of it, it doesn't make sense at the time. But often, almost every time, when you get to the other side of it, it's behind you. You can look back and you say, okay, I, I, I got something from that. I learned something from that. I grew from that in some way. And now looking back on it, now it kind of makes sense to me. At the time, I didn't understand it all. Mary? You mentioned Joseph, and I, I heard a minister say this week, um, he said because of the sin of partiality by Joseph's father, he had to go to Egypt and be treated badly and be imprisoned and be, uh, because his father hadn't done it, hadn't trained him right. He just told him how wonderful he was. And it was just a real reminder to me of parents and grandparents that uh, sometimes we are creating someone who we're end up, we end up being the cause of them having to suffer hmm. because of partiality. And, and when God has a, like he had a purpose for Joseph, so he had a training regiment to get Joseph ready. He had to. That... Joseph didn't like, I'm sure, at the time. But when we got to the other side of it, it made sense to him. I think sometimes we go through difficult times because God is getting us ready for something that we weren't ready for before. I'll give an example of that. Uh, we left Mount Washington Baptist Church because we were unhappy uh, there with a new pastor that had come there. And uh, we came here. And I was entrenched there. I mean, I was all the boards, all the committees, all the everything. And... I didn't really want to leave because I loved doing all that. But Jan wasn't coming to church. She wasn't coming to church. And if she wasn't coming to church, the kids weren't coming to church. So I'm at church by myself. And I looked at that and said, that doesn't make sense. That's not what God wants. Uh, and so we left and we came here. And uh, I learned so much here that I needed to know that I wouldn't have known if we hadn't been unhappy at Mount Washington and left. And at the time, we weren't happy. We were upset. But when we got here and we said, and we, I'm, when I'm sitting in there in the sanctuary and Jan's with me and our kids are with me, I'm like, okay, well, this is so much better. But we had to go through that to get here to give us 
what we needed for what was next. And sometimes that's what God does for us. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you. Shalom.